You're listening to a podcast from EMJ. I'm here today with uh, Dr. Jasmine So, Chair of the UK Resuscitation Council. On behalf of the Emergency Medicine Journal and its readers, thank you very much for meeting with us today here in Bristol at the Emergency Trainees Association Annual Conference. Well, thank you. Uh, your lecture today at the conference, Advances in Resuscitation, highlighted recent changes in the ALS guidelines. Uh, you mentioned several times the emphasis of minimal interruption between CPR and CPR uh, during charging of the defibrillator. The main thing is that once you've diagnosed cardiac arrest, you want to start chest compressions. And several studies show that any pause in those chest compressions can be detrimental in that good quality chest compressions, which are five to six centimetres at about two per second, cause a rise in coronary perfusion pressure. And any time chest compressions are stopped, you get a rapid fall in coronary perfusion pressure. So... Any pause in compressions needs to be planned before compressions are stopped. So the only real things that you should be stopping compressions for are checking the cardiac arrest rhythm Mm -hmm. or delivering a shock and maybe small pauses for other interventions such as tracheal intubation, but very short pauses. One important aspect of um, defibrillation is the pre-shock pause, and that is the interval between giving chest compressions and delivering the shock. For every five second increase in the pre-shock pause, you half the chance of a successful defibrillation shock. Therefore, the new 2010 guideline shock strategy recommends that you do chest compressions, have a brief pause in compressions to assess the rhythm, then you restart chest compressions. And if a rhythm is ventricular fibrillation, you charge the defibrillator during compressions. And once it's charged, you have a brief pause, you deliver the shock, and you restart chest compressions. And this strategy minimises hands-off time for defibrillation. You ask me, is it safe? Well, firstly, the UK guidelines for 2010 recommend this charging during chest compressions shock strategy but this actually was already the guideline in many countries so the 2005 AHA guidelines already recommended this and they were already using the shock strategy safely in parts of Scandinavia and other parts of the world. Also there are actually very few case reports of harm to rescuers from accidental defibrillation. So I think there may be some initial nervousness about this strategy, but when you actually look at the facts, it isn't dangerous to rescuers and it may improve patient outcomes. Uh, During your talk a few minutes ago, you mentioned several uh, important international studies like the TopCat study, and you mentioned also the place and importance of uh, therapeutic hypothermia PCI and oxygenation after return of spontaneous circulation. Where do you think that therapeutic hypothermia should start? In the emergency department or the intensive care units? Well, first of all, I think therapeutic hypothermia should start as soon as it's feasible. And so in some systems, it may actually start out of hospital after return of spontaneous circulation. If the patient arrives with a 
an output in the emergency department, it should start in the emergency department. So ideally, if a patient comes to your emergency department, they're comatose, they've got respiration and spontaneous circulation, the calling should start then if it hasn't already been started. And the easiest way to call a patient is by giving two litres of cold IV fluid. So having a two litre bags of normal saline or Hartmann's in a fridge in the emergency department should be ready and available since the patient comes in, they've been assessed, calling starts. And and delaying it till they get to the emergency from the emergency department to the ICU may cause unnecessary delays. And it's a relatively simple intervention. That's right. You mentioned the potential harmfulness of hyperoxia. A few words about it? Yeah. So once a patient is resuscitated, one of the paradoxical things is that following ischemia, when reperfusion occurs, you may get an increased rate of cellular death due to apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. And cooling or therapeutic hypothermia may help this, but hyperoxia may be fuelless and make reperfusion injury worse. And there's several animal studies and lab studies that show you know, post-ischemic neurons are vulnerable when there's hyperoxia. So there is a rationale from animal studies to aim for normoxia, so a normal oxygen saturation of between 94 and 98% or a normal PO2, say 10 to 12 kilopascals, after restoration of circulation. In terms of actual patient, real patient evidence, there isn't actually any formal randomised studies. There's one observational study published in JAMA in the last year by Kilgannon and colleagues, which looked at a large database of several thousand patients who'd been resuscitated from cardiac arrest, and looked at their partial pressures of oxygen on ICU admission and divided these patient groups up into a hyperoxic group, a normoxic group, and a hypoxemic group. And compared to the normoxic group, the hypoxemic and hyperoxic group did worse. But more interestingly, the hyperoxic group also did worse than the hypoxemic group group. So that's one North American observational study. There's been a recent Australian observational study using similar methodology that's not shown this effect and that's been published in critical care within the last few months. So the jury's still out but it would seem sensible to aim for normoxia. Just, just a few words about the role of capnography in CPR. Waveform capnography, and that's important, so the use of a capnograph that displays a waveform on screen, is useful firstly for confirming tracheal tube placement, and it's already used in anaesthesia, in other settings, in patients who are not in cardiac arrest. And its role in cardiac arrest has always been questioned because people think you don't get an end-tidal CO2 waveform in patients without a cardiac output. And that's partially true, but once you start doing chest compressions, 
and you get pulmonary blood flow, even patients in cardiac arrest tend to have an end-tidal CO2 waveform, although it's at lower values than normal. So if you intubate a patient during cardiac arrest and you get a completely flat line on the end-tidal CO2 waveform, as long as it's working properly, that probably indicates your tube is not in the trachea or the patient's been dead a very long time. But you cannot use a flat end-tidal CO2 trace to say the patient's in cardiac arrest. So, you know, if you do get that, you need to be worried about esophageal intubation. Once you start waveform capnography, your quality of chest compressions may determine the end-tidal CO2 values. And one interesting observation that people are seeing is that if during CPR the patient gets a return of spontaneous circulation, you often do see a sudden rise in end-tidal CO2. So waveform capnography during CPR has a number of benefits. One, to help confirm tracheal tube position. Secondly, to maybe assess the quality of chest compressions. And thirdly, to recognise return of spontaneous circulation during CPR. One last question. Um, where do you think will be the next big revolution in, in, uh, in ALS? Where do you see the future? I think the big revolution in advanced life support isn't the actual science and the guidelines. It's probably the implementation. And if someone has a cardiac arrest, they need early recognition of cardiac arrest, early CPR, early defibrillation and post-resuscitation care. So in communities where they can achieve that, so by training lay people, maybe teaching school children and making CPR part of the school curriculum, uh, having AEDs available, because most people have a cardiac arrest arrest in the community, that may produce the big improvements in survival that we're looking for. And it's not about the science, which is important, but how it's implemented. So by making the guidelines simpler, so compression-only CPR for those who haven't had training or need telephone instructions, teaching more and more people how to do CPR and recognise cardiac arrest, early defibrillation, and good post-resuscitation care by taking patients to hospitals that offer calling uh, uh, who offer percutaneous coronary intervention, who do correct prognostication on ICU. That's where the big improvements are going to be by good implementation of current guidelines. Uh, Dr. So, thank you very much uh, for your time. Uh, on behalf of the EMJ and its readers, thank you again. Thank you. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.